0: Everyone tried to talk him out of it. It was devastating.
1: I'd rather err on the side of compassion.
2: In a divided world where millions of people are struggling to live amid the worst pandemic in 100 years, some people are choosing to hasten their own deaths through a medical professional. Death and dying is all around
0: us, and yet we don't speak about it much. The fear is deep and deeply personal. Physician assisted suicide or MAID ushers in a whole other set of complex
2: issues. Is euthanasia someone's right? Even if someone in a family doesn't want it? Fatan Al-Faraj meets a woman whose sister desperately wanted to live while her husband's uncle decided to end his life. Today on Context, The Ethics of Made in Canada, we begin with one woman's fight in Nova Scotia to stop her husband of 48 years from hastening his own death. Here's
3: Maggie John.
2: Does a wife have the right to stop her husband from ending his life with the help of a doctor? Here with us now are Catherine, who has requested her last name be withheld, and her lawyer, Hugh Schur. Thank you both for joining us today. Catherine, tell us about your fight to stop your husband from dying.
3: Well, it didn't start out that way. I was alongside, I knew that he wanted to do that and I wasn't going to fight him about it, but he had three, a set, three rounds of trying for a maid. And in the first round, I was with him but there were two uh, doctors who didn't agree with that. And so that stopped that. And then he applied again and halfway through that, I realized they were using an assessment that was not right. And uh, he he has a uh, hypochondriasis and that leads to anxiety and that anxiety can give uh, psychosomatic symptoms. And I believe that he could be helped by psychiatric help.
2: Some watching will say, well, if your husband wants to die, hasten his death, he should have the right to do so.
3: Well, I saw something wrong with the system of MAID as well. It just didn't seem right to say that he would be dying of cerebrovascular disease in six months when he only has mild dementia and moderate cerebral atrophy. That doesn't seem right to me. It was a put up job. And so that really, the red flag came on when that happened.
2: Okay, so you have taken this all the way to the Nova Scotia Supreme Court. Tell us where this case stands right now.
3: We're waiting for a a decision that says that we could uh, have the doctors come into court with affidavits of their medical um, notes on what they did with Jack and to discuss that and to see how they missed the hypochondriasis.
2: Okay, Mr. Shear, I'm turning to you now. Tell us about where the case stands. I know that you were in court last week. Uh, What are the implications here?
4: There's two requirements. One, the person has to have capacity to make a decision, and secondly, their death must be reasonably foreseeable. In Jack's case, two of the three assessors that first assessed him found he did not have either capacity and that his death was not. Given that, and given the fact that the doctors have not provided sworn evidence that can be tested in a court, we believe it's essential to demonstrate as a precondition that there is capacity, and secondly, that if there's a dispute based on conflicting medical evidence and assessment, that the court be enabled to intervene to resolve that factual dispute to make sure that somebody who is going to access MAID in fact has capacity and is not going to effectively report to death. Uh, without understanding the full implications
2: of that. Okay, you have hit some roadblocks along the way with this case. My last question to you, Mr. Scheer, what are the implications for this going forward when we're looking at made medical assistance in dying in our country? How could this case impact that?
4: There's two main issues. Number one is to ensure that there's a level of oversight in the event that there's a required appeal in circumstances where there's conflicting medical reports and assessments. And number two, there's a real concern about the independence of the process, where a person who's declined for aid from two of three assessors is able to keep seeking out additional assessment reports indefinitely uh, and effectively doctor shop until they get the answer that they want. And that is not what Parliament intended mm-hmm. when it put in place the requirement of medical oversight uh, to prevent against the risks the risk to senior and vulnerable people
2: okay we'll, we'll have to leave it right there mr Hueser and Catherine. thank you for joining us to talk about this very complex case we'll be watching it closely thank you again
5: i am supportive because what has been clear to me is the public categorically has wanted something done about this and i watched as the medical establishment the medical community really held off for a long time and i really felt that we had to support public voices But as we now look at the point we're at with expanding the legislation, I worry. Uh, I worry about that expansion.
2: Medical assistance in dying remains a divisive issue in Canada. Earlier, I spoke with Rabbi Jordan Cohen, who has arrived at a rather unexpected conclusion. Thanks for talking with us today, Rabbi Cohen. Oh, it's a
1: pleasure, Maggie. Thank you for being here.
2: So as I was doing my research, learned that you had kind of pivoted, changed your mind about MAID over the years as you journeyed with some of your congregants who uh, were ill and and journeying towards death. Tell me about this.
1: I don't really think I changed my mind. I don't think I really had a particular position. So it really was about figuring out um, where I was comfortable where I stood on the issue, um, and then ultimately having to share that with my congregation and with my community, who I knew were, were curious and eager to know where I stood. I guess it was 2016 that Bill C-14 was gonna pass and that this was gonna become acceptable under law in Canada. The context sort of changed. Before that, when people would ask me where I stood, it was really a theoretical question. Jewish tradition puts primacy on the value of life. Mm. We are not supposed to do anything that would hasten end of life and uh, hasten death. And therefore this really didn't seem to fit in with our tradition. When the law passed and when I began to see that people in our own community were now availing themselves of that option, Mm. I realized for myself and for my community I needed to do a much deeper study and come to a position and share them, share that with them, which I did. Yeah. And so weighing all that together and talking to a lot of people, um, on uh, Yom Kippur, our Day of Atonement, our holiest day of the year in 2017, um, I spoke about it to the congregation and, uh, and I concluded and shared with them that I was supportive of the bill and supportive of medical assistance in death, if people should so choose that for themselves.
2: Your stance um, is not a popular stance within the faith community. There are scriptures that say thou shalt not kill. There is talk of uh, you know, suicide not being mm-hmm. of God. Uh, some people would say this is not compassionate, that palliative care would be an option that people should look at, and taking care of people well at the end of life. What's your response to that,
1: Rabbi? Oh, I have so many responses to yeah. that. To me, compassion and mercy is what it's all about. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in Jewish tradition, we have uh, two key values, what we refer to as uh, midat hadin and midat rachamim. Mm-hmm. You know, there is the attribute of law and there is the attribute of mercy or compassion. And they always have to be balanced against one another. Um, biblical commandments like thou shall not murder, doesn't say kill in Hebrew says murder, um, or any sort of prohibitions within the religious tradition against suicide. I don't see this as suicide. Um, I see this as a very conscious choice, and that's where Jewish tradition and Canadian law come into conflict. Jewish tradition sees personal choice in terms of life and death almost as irrelevant, Mm. that we are created in the image of God, that, uh, that, that human life takes precedent over anything else. In the book of Ecclesiastes, it says there's a time to be born and a time to die. And what's actually missing from the text is any um, indication of who determines when that time is. And we've always assumed that it was talking about God. But I started to read that text a little bit differently. But it says a time to be born and a time to die. And yet we've taken it out of God's hands in so many ways with birth with fertility clinics and even birth control, we've taken that decision and we're gonna decide whether or not we're going to create life or not. So why is that any different? Why is the determination of the time to be born any different than the determination of the time to die? And and in the end, in balancing those attributes of law and compassion, uh, I basically came to the conclusion that if we're gonna err I'd rather err on the side of compassion.
2: 14,000 people have died with the assistance of a medical professional since MAID went into law in 2016. Since then, a court ruling in Quebec has challenged the current legislation, causing Justice Minister David Lemetti to introduce a new bill that would amend parts of the legislation, specifically allowing those who might be suffering from chronic illness or disability the option to hasten their death. Vice President of the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada, David Goretzky, joins us with a unique and personal perspective on this issue. Thank you so much for joining us today, David.
6: Thanks Maggie, great to be here.
2: Yeah, so we don't wanna get into all of the weeds of the legislation, but where does it stand right now when it comes to Made?
6: Well, Made, as you mentioned, was introduced in 2016. And because of the court case, there was a revisitation of the legislation and after Parliament was prorogued, the legislation was introduced, but uh, uh, we'll, we're waiting to hear when it'll be reintroduced after Parliament uh, comes back. Uh, so this is a, uh, a response to that court case in Quebec, for sure. Yeah.
2: Now, tell us about your personal experience uh, with MAID. You have a personal story.
6: Right, uh, 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 Quite a few, just a few months before COVID uh, took place, and uh, I was actually in the hospital uh, visiting my wife. My wife had a brief stay at the hospital. And uh, we ha- actually happened to be in a room next to a- an elderly woman who had requested uh, medical assistance in death. And uh, just experiencing the family coming through the room uh, and-, and some of the trauma that actually, you know, took place while we were, uh, you know, sitting on the other side of this thin curtain, uh, it w- it really opened our eyes to see... Uh, you know what people are facing, and and uh, really what what convinced me the tragedy that this this legislation has introduced into Canadian uh, life and and public policy.
2: So, David, what do you think about Christians choosing to hasten their death? What are your thoughts on that, on a faith perspective?
6: Well, from ah from the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada and and my own personal perspective, uh, I, I understand that uh, the Christian way is always to preserve life. That doesn't mean that we preserve life at all costs and to our towards all ends. But uh, we believe that God's a sovereign God. We believe that uh, he's the one who's in control of life and death. And um, hasting death seems to me to be a, a way that we're saying to God, you know, God, you don't really know uh, what's, what's good for me. And I, I'm just going to hasten what otherwise I think is really in your hands.
2: Thank you so much, David Gretzky, Executive Vice President of the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada. Thank you for your time.
6: Thank you, Maggie.
2: The heartache of losing someone close to you is excruciating. The circumstances surrounding their death is something that affects the people left behind. Contact Senior Producer Fatin Al-Faraj spoke with Colleen James about the effect Maid had on her own family.
0: Colleen, our program today is about medical assistance in dying and you went through that experience in the family. Can you tell us about that please? Well, my husband's uncle uh, chose to do medically assisted dying and uh, it was devastating on our whole family. He was 84 years old and uh, was just experiencing normal um, uh, normal issues that seniors have um, Uh, but he decided that he was tired and just didn't want to go on living anymore. He had a a long-term companion of 20 years, um, you know, quite a large family, two grandsons, a granddaughter that was getting married in the summer. Um, You know, everyone tried to talk him out of it. It was devastating. Do you think that there was like a psychological uh, layer to it? Personally, I don't. I think that he just, he was he was always kind of a stubborn man. He was a little bit selfish and he, you know, he always did what he wanted to do. And um, this is something that he decided he was going to do and he was going to do it. Do you think the medical sector uh, did uh, go through like the procedure in, in a right way? Well, we did question it because um, right up until the last minute, uh, he was going to do it. And then on the day of the procedure, he canceled it. And uh, he did go to a rehab center and started rehab and was doing very well. And then um, without telling anybody, he went back to the original facility about maybe three or four weeks later and chose to do it again and did go through with it. And for us, we kind of thought if you're, not sure, and you're bouncing around back and forth like that, that that's something that the doctors should have taken into consideration. That, you know, one minute you want to do it, the next minute you don't want to do it. And, you know, that was a concern for us. On the other hand, your sister was fighting for her life. My younger sister was dying at the time. And, you know, that was part of what made it even harder for us because, you know, she would have given anything to live. And, you know, to have our uncle almost take it so lightly, choose because he was tired to end his life when she would give anything to live you know it was very very hard for us and two years later does it get any better i don't think so because you know his granddaughter's now married she's moved on in her career his grandsons have and you know my mother-in-law i spoke with her last night and you know she's 86 and she misses him she's known him since she was 15 years old and you know it's it's like he was like a sibling to her i don't know you know we we still wish he hadn't done it we wish he was still here with us he was a big part of our family
2: Coming up on the queue, more with Rabbi Jordan Cohen and Muslim journalist and activist Rahil Raza to discuss their religion's perspectives on MAID. Plus, Amy Hasbrook, disability rights activist and founder and director of Toujours Vivant, not dead yet.
5: My greatest fear is that what this does to society without us even being fully conscious of it, that the day could come where we see a person with whatever challenges they may have, whether they're wheelchair bound or whatever issues they have, and we will look at that person and think, why would they do that to other people as opposed to supporting them as another human being? And I fear that our very views of human frailty and illness will shift. And and I don't think we're fully conscious of that.
2: With the ongoing conversation about changing and expanding made to include those with chronic illness and disabilities, Alex Schadenberg of the Euthanasia Prevention Coalition stands opposed to it all. He believes a culture of loneliness could be part of the reason why some are deciding to take the route of death. Thanks for joining us today, Alex. Talk to me a little bit more about this culture of loneliness. Why do you think this plays a role in the increase in medical assistance in dying?
7: Well, what you have is a situation where there's a lot of people who are, they might have a medical condition, but because of their loneliness or their, how would you say, their social isolation, they feel that their life has lost purpose or value. And so they're asking for death to be inflicted upon them, not because they are dying or suffering so greatly. It's because they feel that there's no more purpose to living. To me, that's a very sad commentary on our society.
2: It's a concern for sure. The Nova Scotia case, we just heard uh, from Hugh and Catherine from Nova Scotia. You're supporting this case. Why is that?
7: Well, first of all, this great question as to whether Catherine's husband actually qualifies for euthanasia. He has uh, issues around his uh, uh, c- capability of consenting. Uh, is he actually terminally ill? You know, there's a lot of questions here, and this this is a case that sort of got rolled up into the whole, you know, euthanasia lobby and promoting this and trying to make this happen. And we were saying, hold on a second here. Uh, the law doesn't necessarily include Euthanasia for this gentleman. Uh, The other thing about it is, uh, we're very concerned about how these things are all interpreted because there were several uh, people who assessed him who said he didn't qualify, and yet because he had two qualifications saying yes, therefore he can die by euthanasia. Well, what about the concerns of those who said no?
2: Um, Some call made uh, a medical treatment. How do you describe it?
7: Well, I don't think MAID is a medical treatment. There's nothing about giving somebody a lethal injection of lethal drugs, which is a medical treatment. They want to call it a medical treatment because then they can package it and make and make themselves feel better about it. And they can pay for it in a whole you know way of doing things. And they can say, this is what we do in medical treatment cases. But it's not a medical treatment. It is about killing somebody. And that's what it's about. That's what it does. Uh, we want to make ourselves feel better by calling it MAID, medical aid in dying. Well, what it actually is, is death by lethal injection. That's what we're doing. Uh, we can call it anything you want to make ourselves feel better. It's about killing somebody.
2: What are some alternatives then for people who would want to hasten their death? What should they consider?
7: Well, we have always believed in caring, not killing. But the prime example is the. Uh, a lot of people during this COVID crisis felt, uh, and there were several cases that got to the media about people who were asking for for euthanasia because they were lonely. They were uh, alone. They felt that their life had no purpose or value any longer. And they were thinking that euthanasia was the answer. You know, made was the answer in those situations. And really the answer is a culture that cares. We've got a lot of people who need uh, community support. That's what they need. They need a compassionate community. They don't need death by lethal injection. Good
2: insight. Thank you so much, Alex Schattenberg of the Euthanasia Prevention Coalition. Thank you for joining us today.
7: Thank you very much.
2: It's time now for The Q, an opportunity to hear different views on the issue at hand. And there's no shortage of views on medical assistance in dying. Joining us is Amy Hasbrook, disability rights activist and founder and director of Toujours Vivant, Not Dead Yet, Rabbi Jordan Cohen, and journalist and activist Raheel Raza. Thank you all for joining me today. Amy, I'm going to start with you. You hear from a lot of people within the disability community who are afraid of the amendments proposed for the MAID legislation. Tell me why.
8: Well, Lizzie, there's um, there are several reasons, partly because um, there can be no real choice to die as long as people with disabilities don't have a real choice in where and how they live. And unfortunately, that is the case for people with disabilities in all Western civilizations but also as, and especially Canada. Um, secondly. Uh, Medical assistance in dying um, is a discriminatory practice because people with disabilities, when they uh, express a desire to die, are uh, unlike non-disabled people who receive suicide prevention services, disabled people are given suicide completion services and that is the basis behind assistance in dying.
2: Okay, so you see the amendments as being, if if foreseeable death is taken off the table, you think that that will just expedite the process for a lot of people within the disability community?
8: Right, and even under the foreseeable death, there have been 14,000 people who've been killed. And if that lone safeguard that we were able to get in was was removed, then there would be essentially no safeguard because their their plan is to have a 90-day waiting period, and we know that that would be challenged and defeated in court.
2: Okay. Rabbi Cohen, while you agree with May, do you see Amy's concerns, especially if foreseeable death is taken out of the law?
1: You know, it's, it's, there's always concerns around the application of the law um, and as to whether it's, it's evenly applied and whether there's any uh, possibility of uh, coercion within the law that would allow people to be less than actually making their own fully thoughtful and mindful decisions. We see that not only in the disabled community, but we also see it in in the uh, seniors community, people that are living in long-term care facilities and seniors' residences, whether there's discussion about whether um, this would be allowed to practice institutionally within those facilities, even though that may actually be the people's homes and they should have the opportunity within the law. Um, to make their own decisions in that regard.
2: So Raheel, I want to hear from you. You know, we have these uh, this law on the books. Um, we've heard what Amy's concerns are as a representative of the disability community. How do we how do we deal with this? What what does the Muslim faith say about hastening death and just the concerns that that community has?
9: Well, the whole concept is moot as far as theology is concerned. Uh, Theologically, in Islam... It's very clear and all scholars agree that life is given by God and life is taken by God and human beings do not have a choice in this. And there is no debate and discussion on this because there is unanimous agreement that this is what it's meant to be. Where the debate and discussion does appear and there are different opinions, is about the, you know, do not resuscitate and keeping people alive uh, artificially on machines and as i said there are different schools of thought on this i personally have made a will a living will saying that i do not wish to be kept alive artificially on uh, machines and the american the islamic medical association of america uh, has agreed that if a person is in a vegetative state over a period of time uh, that is permissible so the, it's an ethical dilemma because there is the question of uh, you know the the uh, re- the religious Um, uh, rulings uh, and what we are faced with today because it's a new concept for many people
2: Yeah, Amy do you think that this could lead to a slippery slope of you know there's talk of eventually I mean assumption that eventually maybe younger people will be able to access MAID maybe mentally ill people I mean this is not in the books right now to make it clear it is not in the amendments but there is talk of could this lead to that what are your thoughts Amy?
8: Uh, yeah, and in fact, the proposed Bill C-7 would include, um, it supposedly would exclude people with psychiatric disabilities from the definition of disability, but there is no, uh, in all definitions of disability, psychiatric disability is included, and so that would be a real false, it would be a false distinction, a uh, distinction without a difference, in other words. So just... Try to pretend that people with mental illness aren't people with disabilities is ridiculous, and um, as well, while there um, the law would allow for people who were not competent at the time of euthanasia to be euthanized, and there have been cases where people have expressed uh, a, um, concern about that. For Hill, what are your thoughts on this? Could
2: it lead to a slippery slope?
9: It is a very slippery slope as far as practicing Muslims are concerned, but I think that these are also personal choices that people have to make. And I think everyone has to decide for themselves. If I've made a decision not to be kept alive on machines, the ethical and moral decision is with the people who are going to make the decision, when I can't make the decision for myself. And that is my concern.
2: OK. Last word to you, Rabbi Cohen. What are your thoughts?
1: I'm always concerned about this notion of the slippery slope because should we make decisions now based on concerns about things being taken to an absurd um, extent sometime in the future? I think I'm I'm quite comfortable with where Canadian laws are now, where it has to be a, a mindful choice, a thoughtful choice, an individual choice It needs to be supported by two medical professionals, um, and there has to be free of any sort of coercion. I don't consider it suicide i don't consider it euthanasia at all it is a mindful choice about how one chooses to end the suffering um, at the at their end of life and i think we all as individuals have that right
2: okay it's complicated to say the very least amy hasbrook disability rights activist and founder and director of toujours vivant not dead yet rabbi jordan cohen and journalist and activist raheel raza thank you all for joining us today
9: Thank you, pleasure,
2: thank you. Death and dying is never an easy conversation to have, but we had an interesting one, a complex one today with our guests. We invite you to our website to see more information about the show. For all of us here at Context, thanks for watching,
8: bye.